Thanks for listening to The Vine. We're a new church in Austin, Texas with the simple goal of following Jesus together. And we hope this sermon helps you in doing that. Scripture reading for this Sunday is Matthew 16, verses 21 to 26. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hand of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said. This shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Lightson. So this morning kicks off our uh, series on Lent. For many people who are unfamiliar with the church calendar, or maybe people who are uh, new to church, uh, there is a tradition within Christianity for many generations that the year is broken up in different segments and sections. And each of these we repeat every single year and they are meant to teach us something. So we're in the season of Lent, which is a 40-day journey as we're looking towards Easter. And this really is a time of introspection for us to look at our lives, to look at the places with our hearts or souls that aren't yet quite ready to experience that Easter promise. So as we walk through this journey, we're, we're at really preparing ourselves uh, through confession, through uh, just uh, self-identification of where we need to grow, where do we need to experience greater freedom. And so for us, what we're calling this series is Soul Detox. In the same way that many people occasionally have a physical detox, they actually cleanse their bodies of toxins and things that are holding them back from from full health, many of us need a soul detox. We are are needing a season of our life where we take an honest look at our hearts and our souls and, and trust that the gospel, God's work in our life, can cleanse us and make us more whole and make us new again. And so uh, a great uh, verse that reminds us of this is an ancient Hebrew proverb, Proverbs uh, 4.23, that says, Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. For some people who grew up in church, this was the verse that was used to teach kids not to date. I don't know if that was any of you. It was for me. Uh, that's such a thin understanding of this verse. What this verse is really saying is we are people who were created to live from our soul. Who are lived to cre- we are created to live from our hearts. And so what happens in our heart affects all of our life. It's like a wellspring. So shouldn't we be mindful of the things that, that we are allowing into our hearts and our souls? We need to be mindful of that. And so for us, we are having a cleansing during these 40 days. And today in particular, we're going to look at one, one problem, one toxin, if you will, and that is the toxin of control. And some of us might identify that we have a control problem. Some people, no, I don't really have a control problem, but I'm sitting next to someone who has a control problem. Uh, there's, you know, there's a little bit of this. And so when we think about control, control people, we probably think about people who react strongly to something like this, you know, like, this might really bother you if you 
have, or, or something like this, this picture, like um, out of all the different obsessive compulsive disorders are the ones that, yeah. Uh, or, you know, that just might be uncomfortable for you. Uh, the animal that would do that, yeah, this is really bothering for some people. <laughs> uh, and this right here, I think, is really, really a cruel picture. Because you want to line it up perfectly, you get so close, but you can't quite do it. So you have to give up on one thing. So there are some people who look at this and go, this really bothers me. And there are other people who are like, I don't even get why that's funny, right? What, what did I miss on that? We're actually going to talk about a different type of control problem, one that's more elusive, one that's more subtle. Even in our scripture reading today, we, we see a demonstration of it. And you might have come in thinking, what does that passage have to do about control? And um, that actually demonstrates how subtle and powerful and toxic control can be for many of us. For us to understand what was important in this interaction between Jesus and Peter, we actually have to look at the passage just before it, what happened just before that interaction, to really get a picture. Uh, what happened was Jesus was walking with his disciples, and, and there began to be more and more rumors about who Jesus might be, that he might be the Messiah. Other people said, no, 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 he's just a teacher. He's just a miracle worker. Maybe he's evil. And so he looks at his disciples, and he says, okay, that's what they're thinking. What about you? Who do you say I am? And Peter blurts out before anyone else can, you're the Messiah, you are the Christ, you're the one we've been waiting for. And this is what Jesus says to Peter in response to that, Matthew 16. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter. There's something interesting happening here. Simon was his original name, he renamed him Peter, and you have to wonder why, but he's saying, uh, blessed are you, Simon, for now you are Peter, and the word Peter means like a stone or small rock, and this is important, because Jesus says right after that, and on this rock, on Peter, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I mean, that is a powerful blessing for Peter to receive, that Jesus, who Peter just said in a, in a declaration of faith and belief, you are the Christ, you're the one we've been waiting for, you're going to restore everything. And then uh, Jesus says to Peter, yes, I am, and I'm going to build it on you. I mean, think about what that might do within the heart and the mind of Peter, of like, maybe it was like, whoa. All the disciples, did y'all hear that? It's, he chose me, you know, not you. Maybe Maybe Peter, he began to think like his dreams of his life and the, like the cart that he, that he hitched uh, the wagon to, like the, this thing that he, like, he, he grabbed onto is actually now going to take over the world and that Peter's now going to rise in power and prominence, that Peter's going to be known as like this prestigious individual because now he's going to be the rock. You can, it'd be so easy to imagine how for Peter... He heard this affirmation, and his dreams went wild. We're going to rule the whole world. Why? Because I am the right-hand guy to the Christ. He's choosing me. But the problem with God is uh, God's scripts for our life and our scripts sometimes don't line up. I don't know if you've ever experienced that. 
the very next verse, Jesus starts pointing him off script. In the face of these dreams and these hopes that Peter would have for his life, Jesus takes a left-hand turn when he was expecting a right. Matthew 16, 21 and 22. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples, notice the left-hand turn, that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things at the hand of the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, that he must be killed on the third day and be raised to life. That is a left-hand turn probably to what Peter and the disciples were expecting. So, you're going to be my right-hand man, and I'm going to die. <laughs> that changes up the, the scenario a little bit. And notice what happens in verse 22. How does Peter respond? Peter took him aside. At least he took him aside, right? At least he, like, pulled him aside and rebuked Jesus. Never, Lord, this shall never happen to you. You have to wonder, what's behind this rebuke? What is behind this rebuke? From a declaration of you are the Christ to now, I'm going to rebuke you. I'm going to tell you where you're way off. This rebuke is really telling to me because I think what this rebuke was is the fact that when God starts pointing him off script, when he starts threatening Peter's dream, what follows is a rebuke. And we all know this. When, when we have plans in our hearts and our minds for the future, <clears throat> and something happens and it takes a left-hand turn, what do we naturally do? We get white-knuckled. We, we, we grasp a little bit harder. It's like a, someone learning to ride a motorcycle. We do the thing that you shouldn't do when it's going out of control. You clasp down and you grip even more, spinning you out of control. I know this from personal experience. <laughs> what happens when that happens is that we start rebuking all other voices that are pointing us away from the dream we want, the thing that we wish we could control our very life. We have to acknowledge, like, how much stress in our life is there because we try to control the impossible? How much stress is involved in our life as we try to control relationships, our plans, our future, this world? And all of this is so toxic for the soul. We see the, the problem of control popping its head up in all sorts of places. We see the problem of control with the image in which we create, the way we fashion ourselves, the way we dress, the way the friendships we keep, all about the image that we want to control. Even our social media, we like, it's a well-manufactured version of ourself. We, we put out there in the public, we control we take away comments on our Facebook posts that we don't want to be identified with us. Thank you, aunt and uncle. I'm going to go ahead and delete that from my Facebook profile. I don't want no one to think that of me. Thank you for that post. We, like, we, we, like, we manufacture this in this idea that maybe we can control how we're seen. In our marriages, we have the problem of control. There's a wrestling match in a lot of marriages because many of us, married the person we hoped that they would become, right? Like, we see something in them, and that's what I'm going to marry, rather than the person whom they are. So I, I heard this, and I'm going to quote this because it's a broad generality, so you can't be mad at me. I'm quoting it. Uh, I heard someone say that uh, uh, most men marry women with the belief that they will never change. And most women marry men with the belief and the hope that they will change. <laughs> Which is funny because, like, you know, 
it's so, because they're both about control. Like, for men marrying women with the hope that they won't change, I mean, we all change. You know, like, they, it's just a part of life. And then for women, they go, okay, maybe he'll get more domesticated. Maybe he'll chill out a little bit, level off. I, uh, I remember in our first year of marriage, we, uh, for Jen and I, we were friends in college, and we were, had like, we were part of a large group of friends, and we kind of incestually like, paired off and married each other, and, which is really fun because we have like decades long of friendship. And a friend, Micah, uh, was over in our, in our living room, and we're, Micah and Amber and Jen and I were hanging out, and uh, we were talking about the good old days of how spontaneous and fun we used to be. All these memories. And Micah, in a jokingly tone, turned around and said, Mark, didn't they fool us? I mean, like, total bait and switch. They used to be so fun. (laughs) And I remember, like, in that moment, having total clairvoyance, what I should do, look straight down at the ground, not make eye contact, and not move. And I just remember, like, looking over at Micah, I'm like, I'm sorry, man, I can't bail you out on this one. it's not worth it. It's just not worth it. You know, uh, and for us, like, you know, we, we have, like, this desire to control people. We see this in marriages, wanting them to be the version of them that we, we wanted them to be. And we're both selective on that, how we control people. We, uh, we control our finances. We really try to, we, much of our desire for working really, really hard is that maybe we can make some more money. Maybe we can ensure that dream that we really want can happen. So we, we strain for finances, we clasp down, and that becomes an area of our life where we overly obsessively control. And we control how money is spent around us because of that. We see control as affecting us in our career. We have a vision of where we want to be in life. And everyone in the way is either a threat or they're a means to the end for me to get to where I want to be. And so we try to control all of that around us. We see control and the problem for many of us with our our body image issues. A lot of time, eating disorders is an attempt to to control. We can't can't really control many things around us or even control in many ways the way we look, but one thing I can control is what I put in my body. So you clasp down on control there. We see control in our schedules. How do you respond to interruptions to your day? This will tell you how, if you have a control problem with your schedule. How do you respond when you have your plan, your agenda, and something interrupts it? Is it like, ugh, silence, I'm gonna have, I have a plan? Or are you open about it? You allow like, this moment to happen that maybe I can serve someone, maybe I can care, maybe there's something in this moment. Jesus had a ministry of interruptions. He, he was not a control freak. He had an agenda, but he constantly was attentive to the people whom was around, that he was around. And we see control in our parenting. Um, I don't mean to step on any feet here, but I'm trying to do it all across the board so we all are stepped on. <laughs> we see control in our parenting. I heard this quote many years ago, and I think it's true. I already see this with our, like, five-year-old, which is so ridiculous. But um, that there's no stronger force in a child's life than the unlived life of their parent. Like we look at the life we wish that we had, the decisions we wish we would have made, and we impose them on our children. Like we, we force our children to live the version of our life that we wish that, they, that we could have. And we all of a sudden, we start controlling the environments. We helicopter over our kids, controlling 
problems and conflicts. Um, I heard someone say recently about parenting, it's not, we're no longer helicopter parents. We don't like fly over our kid and watch it. We're actually lawnmower parents. We go in front of our kids, smooth out everything, make sure every conflict is fine, make sure all the kids have been approved that are my kids' friends. Like we, we actually go in front of them. And it, part of that's good, but there's also a control part to it. And control will affect your soul. And what we see about any toxin, it affects relationships around you. And the crazy thing, and this passage with Peter describes it too, is ultimately we will try to control God. We have Jesus saying, this is God's plans, this are my Father's plans. And Peter, he looks at the plan of God and says, no, 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 no. I'm going to rebuke that idea. I'm going to rebuke God's plan for my life because there's something else that I was hoping for. We, oftentimes, we might be guilty of using our religion, our religious practices, as a means to control God. All right, if I'm faithful in these areas, then God has to bless me here. If I'm, if I'm doing these things and if I'm giving and if I'm participating in this, well, then surely God will give me my dream. And even in doing this, it's a very toxic relationship we form with God. I had a friend paraphrase this interaction between Jesus and, and, and Peter like this. Jesus tells Peter his plans, and Peter looks at Jesus and says, this isn't, this isn't how it's supposed to be. And Jesus looks at Peter and says, according to whom? And I think for many of us, that's our, that's our response to life is, this isn't how it's supposed to be. This isn't, this isn't the plan that we had, God. I thought we worked this out. And God might look to us and say, according to whom? A little disclaimer, for us not to be a people of control doesn't mean we're, we're called to be detached or ambivalent to life. I think, uh, I think God honors people with great intention, that life kind of bends towards people of great intention. But there's, di- there's a difference between living with intention and living with control, right? And the, the difference is, living with intention is you have hopes and dreams that you've identified, and you walk towards them, but it's a posture of openness. It's a posture of openness that perhaps that I might be derailed, or I might not, not have fully, as Jesus says, I might not have the thoughts and concerns of God in my heart and my mind. So I'm going to walk with attentiveness, and perhaps I might be uh, redirected. And for us, when we live with control, it's a fixed mindset that everything that threatens this thing are going to be silenced and pushed aside. Uh, My friend Jerry Hughes, he said to me recently, control is overrated. I think there's something to that. That for us, the very thing we want actually might be toxic for our soul. So Jesus said in verse 23, he turned to Peter. And this isn't one of those... um, Verses you should quote to one another. Uh, Jesus turned to Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Think about this. Just verses before this, Peter was, You're the rock. You're the one I'm going to build my church. And now, get behind me, Satan? That's a bit of a drop, right? In just a couple of verses. And I don't think it's like Jesus is some like really mean middle school girl who, who turns on his friends quickly. You know, like, we're not talking to Ashley anymore. 
You know, like it's, it's not like that. I think what Jesus is ha- what's happening in this is that Jesus wasn't merely chastising Peter, but he was saying a really strong, authoritative no to something toxic. And something I actually think that Jesus was tempted by himself. And you might think, oh, Jesus can't be tempted, he's God. But the reality is that Jesus was most definitely tempted. Being tempted is not sin. It's our response to our temptations is where we find ourselves. And I take great hope in the fact that Jesus experienced all sorts of temptations. And he was pure. He was faithful through it all. But the interesting thing for me is when I look throughout the Gospels, and this is me kind of inserting my own thoughts on this, but when I look throughout the Gospels, my guess is Jesus' greatest temptation was control. Out of all the different things he probably struggled with, it was control. And the reason why I think that is because that was the number one ploy the enemy had on him. Time and time again, the enemy came to him and tempted him with control. We see this in the wilderness. When Jesus was in the wilderness, three different times the enemy came to him and said, you're really hungry, just turn this stone into bread. Another time, if you really are the son of God, you should jump off the top of the temple and let the angels catch you. If you really are the son of God, just why don't you just take control of the whole world? Just bow to me. We see this temptation. All three of those are about control. Even when Jesus was in the garden right before his own death, he went to his father, Father, if there's any other way, he was pleading, if there's any other way, take this cup from me. He was struggling to release the thing that he knew he had to, but he followed it with, but thy will be done. Like, it's, it's, I'm going to surrender this to you. And then finally, even on the cross, this was like the last chance for him to fall into sin. The very last chance we find these verses. And notice in the voices of the people around him, um, Luke 23, the soldiers came up. This is while Jesus was on the cross. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Notice like the ploy in that. If you are, because he really was. He really did have power and authority. He was just surrendering it. If you really are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was written a notice above him which read, this is the king of Jews, just mocking him. And one of the criminals who hung there next to him, hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Like, aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. And the crazy thing for me is, I think all of heaven and hell was silent in this moment, and they're watching Jesus in this act of surrender, hoping, waiting, will he reach out and grab onto control, the thing that was rightfully his, or Will he, in this last moment, surrender himself? And all of eternity hinged on this one moment, this one final temptation of control. And then Jesus says, into your hands I commit my spirit. I surrender. I surrender myself. Jesus shows us the fact that he walked through temptations of control, and he time and time again released himself. And we see the power of Jesus' life in that and what he was able to do. So in this moment, he's looking at Peter back to this interaction. He says, get behind me, Satan. You don't know what the thoughts of God are. And then verse 24, Jesus said to his disciples, this is the remedy for control, by the way. Verse 24, then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, 
take up their cross and follow me. For whoever, whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. How much in our day and age, our culture, do we celebrate these things? Denial. Sacrifice. Surrendering. Following. Are these the things we praise in modern day? Like just pouring yourself out. What Jesus is saying there is if you want to know the heart and mind of God, if you want to know what it's like to be with me and know me, you're going to have to surrender. You can't walk in the way of control. You're going to have to deny yourself, take up your cross, the instrument of death, and follow me. And whoever wants to lose their life, I promise you, you're going to find it in the end. That will only happen if you release control. So for us as a church, we, we talk often about the fact that our, our goal is really simple. We want to be a community that's following Jesus together. We talk about that every single week. And oftentimes we might get comfort in that. But today, this idea of following Jesus should also be really daunting. For where did Jesus lead his people? Jesus led his people to the messy, broken people in their world. He didn't, like, lead people into simple relationships. It got dirty and messy. He led people into hardship. He led people into conflict. He led people into praise of the community and then out of praise in the community. And for us, Jesus is leading us to all those places. And ultimately, Jesus is leading us to a cross where we get to surrender ourselves to. But the hope is that Jesus will, too, lead us to the empty tomb where hope surprises again, where life is found again. This is the way of the Christian life, is that we follow Jesus in all of it, that we have life, we lose it, and then we find something even richer. Releasing control and following Jesus actually tackles the sin beneath the sin. Why is control bad? Is control just bad because it's bad? I think control is bad because there's something underneath control which is even more toxic. What might that be? The problem with control is when we exercise control, this is our protest to God saying he's trustworthy. God comes to us and says that he's trustworthy, and we go, you might be, but I actually trust myself a little bit more. I trust my plans. I trust my relationships. I trust my way. That that's actually the, the, the problem. That that's the toxin between the toxin. That's the toxin right there that it's underneath that. Do you really believe that God is trustworthy, that he knows your needs, he knows your name, and he's going to lead you to everything that you need? Maybe not what you want, but what you need. The problem for some of us is we're willing to call ourselves believers, but we really struggle with following Christ. We're willing to tick off the box, yeah, I believe in, in Jesus, but when it comes to actually following Jesus, we shirk away because we know where he leads us. It leads us out of control. But there is freedom in that way. Verse 26, Jesus finishes this passage. Notice the, where this problem leads us. What good would it be for someone to gain the whole world? What good would it be if you were actually able to control all things and yet you forfeited your soul? Or what could anyone give in exchange for their soul? Control is a soul problem. It affects our soul. 
Because if your life is so tunnel vision on your wishes and your ambitions, it will distort your heart. It will distort your soul. If you got everything you wanted, would you be better for it? Would your soul be healthy because of it? C.S. Lewis, he has a quote from a, uh, this is a quote from a fictional book called The Great Divorce. And this uh, quote is, is, he was meditating on, on heaven and hell. And I just found these words really powerful this week. See, he said, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. What he's pointing to is that, that there actually might be a hellish experience if we received everything we ever wanted. That it actually wouldn't lead us to health. That we are actually created for something else. We are created to trust God, saying in our life, with all of our wishes and our dreams and our hopes and our relationships in our hand, God, I just want your will. I trust you. So in this series, we, we want to not only point out where the problem is, but we want to help us walk through a cleansing. And you're not going to get a blueberry shake on the way out. Uh, it's not going to be that kind of cleansing. Uh, or grass juice. That, that's, that's a part of cleansing, right? They juice grass, which I didn't know you could do. Uh, well, we do want to help identify what are some ways that we can experience. So real quickly, there are three ways, that I, three steps, I think, for identifying how to experience health from control. The first one is identify the area of your life you have a problem. I first wrote identify if you have a problem, but my guess is we all have an area of our life we have a problem. We might be really open with our career and our finances, but our kids, that's something different. We won't release them. Or we might, you can have my kids. Anyone can have my kids. But it might be, it might be my plans, my career, my retirement plan. And all, and we, so we, there's an area of our life where we get white-knuckled. So for us, the step, first step is where in our life do we exercise the most control? Secondly, we release control it, and as an act of trust. We release control, not just, just, all right, we release it, but we release it to God in an act of trust. We release it to the Lord saying, God, I th- think you know my needs better than I know them. God, I think... I think you're trustworthy here. You said your love endures forever, and so I'm, I'm going to release this to you in an act of trust. And then finally, it's not only about releasing, but it's also about recommitting yourself to walk with Jesus in that area of your life. So if your issue of control is around your marriage, and that's not only releasing control in an act of trust, but it's also saying, all right, Jesus, I want you to lead me back into my marriage in a different way. Uh, I want you to lead me back into my family in a different way. I want you to lead... I want you to lead me back into my career in a way that I've never experienced this before. The story of humanity's relationship with God is one where God again and again and again comes to his people and says, follow me. I want you to know the nearness of my relationship. I want you to learn like a good shepherd to walk close to me, trusting that I'm going to lead you by still waters. I'm going to restore your soul Our hope is through this 40-day experience as we walk through this wilderness together that we would recommit to truly following Jesus, knowing he's going to take us outside of our comforts, outside of our wishes, outside our dreams. So for you this day, my encouragement is this. Release the places of control in your life. 
and find out what it means to trust God. For Jesus truly is trustworthy.